From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Okay, yeah, I have it hooked up now. I have it hooked up now. Oh. It's just my own tape recorder. The last time I couldn't take notes fast enough. <laughs> oh. So I thought maybe if I brought a tape recorder, I could, you know, get some of the conversation down a little better. <laughs> I see. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio tidbits we find all over the world. Literally, we have our ear to the ground, the air, and everywhere in between. The internet, the radio, audio festivals, and then we siphon off the best and most interesting and play it for you each week on ReSound. What places have you visited? Have you ever ridden on an airplane? No. No, I've never gone up. I had a chance to go up, but I didn't go. During the Depression, do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Nobody had any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and also, I guess you were here during the dust, the dust bowl. Oh yes. So you've had quite, you've had quite some experiences. Yes. A radio producer's job is to find a subject and then peel back its layers to get underneath the skin of the story, if you will, to discover the twists and turns and complications of whatever they've chosen to investigate. Scratch the surface, dig into what someone says, and things just start seeping out. It may be just a trickle, or it may be a mighty geyser, but rest assured, no one and nothing is storyless. Selma. I oh. say it looks to me they didn't get your dinner tray. Oh. I'm gonna pick it up. Your mouth gets dry. Okay. If you take a good look at well, just about anything, everything is more than it seems. Today on ReSound, lots of more. More than a janitor, more than just a pop song, more than a game, and less than a psychic. Oh, it all becomes clear. Just stay tuned for more. All anyone really has is their story. During Michael Macklin's days as a maintenance man at the Wayne Fleet School in Portland, Maine, his world is filled with sawdust and kids. At night, his world is filled with poetry. This story starts where these two worlds come together. It's 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. In another hour, Michael Macklin will be working. But for now, he's ambling outside his house with his dog Murphy for a smoke and a cup of coffee. How it dawns on us. The sun leaves its coat in the closet and stumbles to the door. And outside, the smallest birds, chickadees and sparrows, begin the heavy lifting, tugging a reluctant day over dark hills past the fading stars. You look out in the yard and you see my neighbor's house and you see the roof line and whatever. And I look out in the same place. And what I've been reading you is kind of the transcript of what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking. Michael started writing poetry when he was about 12 as a way to find some solitude in his hectic house growing up. Now he lives in Portland, Maine. He's an editor at a local poetry magazine and he got his MFA two years ago from Vermont College. And I write poetry whenever the muse says I can write poetry or whenever I have time. For me, it's about the, the search for mystery, the, uh, 
the idea that there is magic in everyday life and that poetry is one way to hang on to it for an instant. For Michael, every moment of life, every interaction he has, is an opportunity for poetic inspiration. It's pretty difficult to make ends meet as a poet, so during the day, Michael works on the maintenance staff at the Waynefleet School, a private school in Portland. His dog Murphy hangs out with him in his basement workshop. Today, he's cutting blocks of soapstone for the elementary school kids to carve an art class. For Michael, no two days are alike. It can go from the emergency toilet repair to trying to figure out how a particular projection can be made, you know, some audiovisual presentation. At first, you might not think maintenance work and poetry are a natural combination, but for Michael, they fit perfectly. In fact, Michael looks at his job as inspiration for his poems. It's not so much that poems get written like the whole thing gets written at work, but I'll, I'll be thinking about them. You're sanding, you're nailing stuff together, gluing stuff up. My head can just roll through that. Anything can become the motivation for a poem, from the material he's working with to the songs he hears on the radio. Les McCann had a song called Compared to What. I heard it on the radio while I was working in the shop. That night at the jazz workshop, he heard Les McCann. He learned that all wild turkeys do not live in poultry barns. When a woman rose from the crowd to set her body free, muscle after muscle taking off on a riff of its own, as though every new note tripped another switch and everyone in the room felt they could dance like that. They could ride McCann's B3 to the stars. Music my brother never heard made him gasp and sweat and ask, so that's jazz? At most schools, the maintenance staff blends into the background, kind of invisible as they empty trash cans and repair leaky faucets. They don't have too much interaction with the kids. But here, Michael revels in the time he gets to spend with the students, and they adore him. As he walks down the hall, the students give him high fives and call him by name. The seniors even asked him to speak at baccalaureate a few years ago. He just has this incredible way of looking at those small things and realizing how important they are. And, you know, I think a lot of people read a poem and they look at it as one poem, and that's that. But he's like taught me to look so much deeper into like, the lines. Joseph Nowak, a senior, first heard Michael's poetry when he came and read in an English class during Joseph's sophomore year. After that, he approached Michael and the school administration with the idea of doing an independent study. Now, Michael and Joseph meet once a week to read and write poems. Let's take a look where there, there were a couple poems you were working on you were still revising. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's infinite possibilities for how you can express yourself through poetry. It's not like writing an essay, and it's not like um, doing something like that, but it's a little more, um, you can be a little more creative with it. Michael also helps out at the literary magazine and reads poems to different English classes. He sees every moment as an opportunity to teach, from talking to students during passing periods to his more formal work with Joseph. Michael learns a lot from the students, too. 
to be walking by the playground and have three and four year olds call your name, you know, like all over the playground, like little sparrows or something, you know. It's a wonderful feeling, you know. Um, and they'll, they'll call to me and ask me to join them in whatever they're doing. So if they're digging that tunnel to China, you know, they'll want some help. And I learn something. I learn about what filters and blinders I've added. So it reminds me always of kind of the wonder of being alive. Michael seems to absorb this childlike sensibility from the students that surround him every day. And that openness helps him to be a better poet. There are lots of people looking for things to love or things to involve themselves in. Um, I happen to have found something. Um, so that makes me feel pretty lucky. A lot of people go to work just for the paycheck, punch in, punch out. Michael takes pleasure in his work on the maintenance staff at Waynefleet and even turns it into art. The young light has no mittens and rubs its palms until the wind sings us from our rumpled beds. Oh, tired eyes open. There is a blue here who should not be forgotten. Where You Least Expect It was produced by Heather Radke at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Now, any regular listener of ReSound knows that we play a lot of work from Salt, because in that little town of Portland, Maine, radio students consistently find great stories to tell. And with all those students coming before them, searching over the years, you'd think that it would be an area already well-mined. But really, is there such a thing? I think this proves that if you're willing to dig, you can find great stuff anywhere. In fact, you're going to hear another story from Salt a little later in today's show. Lucky you. Is there a secret formula for the good radio feature or the good radio program? Listening, I think. I mean, if you're not listening and interested in listening to people and stories and sounds, then I don't think that will communicate to any other listeners. Did you plant a garden? When I first came to Kansas, you couldn't go to the grocery store and buy hardly anything. You had to get busy and raise something if you once really wanted good things to eat, like get from the garden. Listening. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. There's a pop song that plays on every radio station in Brazil. Everyone knows it, everyone hums it, but the lyrics are cryptic and mysterious. In fact, no one really knows exactly what they mean. Well, a radio producer, who also happens to be a well-known singer, decided to investigate what lies behind the surface of this song. She set off on a search for history, for meaning, and for an answer to the question, where is the kid? Lightning strikes. And where is the kid? The kid is selling sweets at the traffic lights. These are the words for this haunting song by the Brazilian pop star Lenini. Se levantar, mãe lavando roupa, 
pai já foi embora E o caçula chora pra se acostumar The child at the traffic lights In traffic jams the world over, we know them We can never get it right Give and you know as you're giving that it's nothing It's not enough Don't give and you feel bad The street kids flash by when we move, past our thick skin. We drive on, anesthetized by life. But occasionally, under a heavy sky as thunder crashes, a kid penetrates her carefully constructed armor and may touch you, staying in the mind as the windscreen wipers thud to and fro against the rain. Relampiano, lightning strikes. I sing it too. I love this song. Tudo tão normal, tudo tal e qual. Neném não tem hora pra ir se deitar. Mãe passando roupa do pai já agora. De um outro caçula que já vai chegar. And so do our audiences when we sing it. So I've come to my home country of Brazil to find out from Lenine and his co-writer Paulinho Mosca why I can feel a secret magic in this song. Paulinho and I had been meaning to write a song together, so I said, I'm coming over to your place, and we spent an afternoon together writing a song which we don't even remember anymore. Lenini is a big Brazilian pop star of the last 10 years who's crossed over into the international scene, big in France, playing in London a couple of weeks ago, always on the move. At the end, we talked a lot about music, played a lot, and then I was going home, and Paulinho came along in the car. So we're driving along the Canal do Leblon, and we stopped at one of those traffic lights. Rio de Janeiro was like the skies of Cornwall, red, crashing down like one of those big thunderstorms which are so common in Rio. And this little girl, around eight years old, with candies at the traffic lights, she knocked on the car window and she looks at the sky and she says, lightning strikes? But she insinuated a melody, lightning strikes. And then she looks in the back and sees the baby seat for my son, which I always had in the car, and she says, where is baby? The lights went green, we left, we looked at each other, and both realized the magic of that moment. And the magic has made it a hit all over Brazil for a decade. Está relampiando, cadê neném? Está vendendo drops no sinal para alguém. Anything else? Todo dia é dia, toda hora é hora. Neném não demora. Tá relampiando, cadê neném? 
Tá vendendo drops no sinal pra alguém Tá relampiando, cadê neném? Tá vendendo drops no sinal pra alguém Tudo é tão normal, tudo tal e qual Neném não demora para se deitar Não passando fogo no pai de agora Excuse me, are you Brazilian? Yeah Can I talk to you? No, in English. Okay. I work for the BBC World Service, okay. and I'm doing a program about the song Relampiano. Okay. You know that one? Yeah. Can you sing it for me? <laughs> oh my God! Okay. Tá relampiando, cadê nenê? Tá vendendo drops no sinal pra alguém. Do you like this song? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Why? Because the lyrics are very good. They talk about a little kid who's, they say, you know, it's, it's lightning, you know, lightning's coming, it's going to rain, where's baby? And he's at the traffic light selling sweets to somebody. Do you think this is a sad song? Yeah, it's a reflective song. It's reflecting on the thousands of children who have to work like that, you know, selling things at traffic lights because they don't have money, they don't have the means to go to school and they have to help at home, help their family. I think it's good that people talk about it in songs. What's your name? Rosa. Rosa, do you think it changes anything, a song like that? Not just one song, lots of things, but it's a beginning. Just like Rosa, I was so sure it was a boy in the song. Now I find it's actually a girl, although the translation from Portuguese can be just kid. Where are the traffic lights? Where is the corner? Who is the kid? Can I find her? Do we feel sad for her in the song? I keep asking myself. Para vencer o medo do trovão, sua vida ponta contra a mão. Tão presente. Ela quando comentou com a gente naquela parada. It was a present. She gave us not only the lyrics but the melody. Lightning strikes. Where is baby? We made some adjustments, but it was a small thing because she gave it to us almost ready. It stayed with us and later Paulinho called me and said, Man, let's write that song. Ten to fifteen days later, I didn't even remember the melody, but he did. So we got together to give a story to that little refrain. You might not like to know that I actually sing your song all over Britain. And when I sing it, I actually tell people, I say, this song is about a child selling candies by the traffic lights. And the way I do it with my band is more solemn. It's quite, kind of, it's like a march, and it's kind of slow and very, very sad. After a gig, I've had people coming from the audience to actually say that they cried. You know, we sing songs by Jobim, by Ginga, mm -hmm. by everybody, and they mention this song particularly. So, I mean, I want to know, when you sing it, do you feel that sadness? Não, é o sentimento guerreiro, é o sentimento de sobrevivência. It's a warrior feeling, it's survival, and the playfulness of a child without perspective or expectation to come and make such a beautiful comment. She wasn't really in business at that moment, she was a baby asking about another baby. I thought this was playful, happening as a background to such a cruel reality, a ferocious and a brutal reality. But I think, no. That baby at the traffic lights is a person with a broader view of things. She hasn't lost her sensitivity to the world because it's such a gentle comment. Porque é um comentário gentil. Quer dizer, não vai levar drops não. 
Não, vou não, minha nega. Tô sem grana agora. Aren't you gonna take my candies? No, my pet. I don't have any change now. Lightning strikes? Where's the baby? It was a comment. She knew she wasn't going to sell because we didn't have the money, but she started the conversation. There is the cruel situation here, but also magic. I have a special soft spot for this song, and so does Paulinho. What's your name? My name is Sayuri Carbonier. Sayuri, do you know the song Relampiono? I know it very much. I think it's beautiful. Actually, it's very sad and it brings, you know, all this problem about heaven, have nots in Brazil. The way he sang today, I thought it was very aggressive. Not as this group in London, this group called Noise, Quatro. She sings it very well, but uh, she sings in a more kind of motherly way, sentimental way. Nice, but sentimental. <laughs> she means me. This one today, he sang it in a very aggressive way. He kind of was fed up with all these injustices in the world. I think he's wanted to see a bit more of a democracy, maybe. Hello, here is Lenini. I would like to invite you to understand and discover my song so a kiss for you for the bbc word service hello valeu beijo tchau você acha que pra, o segredo para eu me sentir mais alegre lembra que eu falei para você da do you think the way for me to feel a bit happier when i sing it do you remember i told you about the sadness and you said monica give this child a chance i think you do a little reggae thing with it do you think that the way to do it is to give it a little black swing, make the groove a bit African, make it happier this way? Well, music always adjusts and adapts itself. You know you can dress it up according to the occasion. Swimming trunks for the beach, smart for the theatre, or you can dress it in black tie to do it at the Cité de la Musique in Paris. And I think the nice thing is that you can have it in so many versions and then it gains a life of its own. Sometimes I hear my songs recorded by other people and I don't see myself in them. It's not mine anymore and I don't have a feeling of ownership. I think it's great. All the different versions are great. Grant me a big honor and sing with me into this mic. Yes. You give the key. No, you. No, you. No, I'm a gentleman. No, you give the key. Tá relampiando cadê neném? Tá vendendo drops no sinal pra alguém. Tá relampiando cadê neném? Tá vendendo drops no sinal pra alguém. Tá vendendo drops no sinal. 
Muito obrigada, Nenê. Ah, Isso aí. Ficou lindo, cara. Não vou esquecer. Vou ficar dava posteridade. The other witness to the magic moment of the creation of this song is Paulo Musca, a Brazilian rocker from Rio. He was there in the car as they moved away from the lights. Lenin said to me, did you hear the melody that the child sang? I said, I was thinking exactly about this. piano, cadê neném? Where is the baby? And, and, and he said, oh, the baby's her. And this is how a song is born. The street girl had looked through the side window of the car and seen the empty baby seat in the back. Nose against the window, she asked, Where's baby? But for Lenini and Paulinho Mosca, as the song takes over, the street girl becomes the baby. And I said, Yes, 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 the baby's selling candies on the street. Yeah, 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 afraid of storming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we begin inside the car, I, I sing the melody and, and, and complete the melody. What if I, I wanted to find her? Have you ever tried to find your girl, your baby? Yeah, at first it was just an inspiration. Oh, oh, let's do this song. Oh, oh, it can be a, like this. And after two days that we finished the song, oh, let's go to, to look for her. But she, she was not there and we asked And we didn't remember her face. So I looked too, down on the corner. Avenida Padre Leonel Franca and Túnel Lagoa Barra. This is where Lenine and Paulo Mosca met. Baby, Nene. It's winter, raining every day. Busy six-lane road, big grey buildings in a rich area. Not many people walk around here. I'm looking, but I, I cannot see kids around here this evening. Usually they sell at rush hour, when there is traffic and they have more time to, uh, to approach the drivers. I see older kids, older people selling. I wonder where she is now. I don't remember her face, because there's a lot of children in, in the street, and I didn't find her, and I didn't know how to look for it for her. I, I asked two guys in traffic lights, but they said, no, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And Nobody knows. <laughs> If you were to find her, do you think you would sing the song to her or do you think it would hurt her to hear her own song? How do you think it would be that encounter? I don't know. I haven't got a clue. I don't even know if she'd recognize herself in it. The focus has changed. There is a thesis that you never get close to the truth. You just collect different versions of the same fact or reality. The only possibility of truth is to collect the biggest number of truths around the same fact. I, for instance, am short-sighted. I don't know how she would see it, and I'm not sure I would sing it to her. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe it's time to tell you what this song says. Remember, it's called Relampiano, Lightning Strikes. It goes like this. Every day is the day, every hour is the hour, and soon the kid is up and working. Mom is washing clothes, dad has gone already, and the youngest cries as he gets used to life. You've got to toughen up that weak heart so you can handle the fear of thunder. Your life runs against the flow. Lightning strikes, and where is the kid? The kid is selling sweets at the traffic lights. Everything is as normal, everything is as it is. The kid doesn't have a bad time. Mum irons the clothes of this year's father and of the new child coming. One more mouth in the shack. Another kilo of flour must come from the same sack to feed another nobody. The city grows with the kid. Lightning strikes. And where is the kid? The kid is selling sweets at the traffic lights. As the age of involvement in drug trafficking groups in the favelas gets younger, more and more kids are ending up on the street in the city because they might be being expelled from the favela by the drug traffickers for being involved, messing up, breaking a rule. And often they're given a choice, either we kill you or you leave, and so they leave. And I've met lots of street kids who I work that have said that. I'm here, they'll tell you which favela they're from, and they say they can't go back. Luke Downley has spent years working with street children in Brazil. There's lots of reasons that kids end up in the street, but I think it's important for us to remember that the kids that sell the stuff to passing cars, on the whole, they're not sleeping in the street. Those kids are going home to families. Their parents know full well that they're selling those sweets on the street and maybe even watching from a distance. So you sometimes get a mother going with ten kids. It's income for that family, and it may even be the biggest breadwinner in the family as well. The difference was those that started using drugs, sniffing glue, were the ones that began to sleep on the street and where street life was taking over. And the ones that were just selling the sweets, some, sometimes they even went to school as well, but they would be working in specific hours, so they'd be working in the afternoon or the evening, being at school in the morning and going home in the evening. Look, think about her not as someone who's a loser, but someone of conquests and dreams. I personally believe this. Your way of thinking is very interesting, you know, because in England there is a lot of discussion after Live Aid, organized by Bob Geldof, about the whole approach to Africa that puts Africans as losers and victims, but you're showing us a different way to see. This kind of helping people is more for the helper than it is for the poor. It's about guilt. Reggae didn't reach the world from Jamaica. It happened via England. Indian music didn't reach the world from India. It happened via England. 
African music appeared to the world through France and not in Africa. The path to world fame is through another country in the developed world. There is guilt permeating all of this, rich guilt. I think we should make use of this guilt. We're not begging. We're not asking for small change or charity. The reality is that we are all on a planet and there is the need for a global consciousness, not these simplistic, undignified roles of winners and losers. But music is a tool for transformation, and I think that people become better through music. One thing that's really complicated is what you do. Do you buy the suite or do you not buy the suite? I've tried to give one or two, you know, hey eyes to the kid and refuse to take the product. And the child would say to me, no, 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 don't do that because I've got to sell this whole box before I'm allowed to go home. What I want is you to buy this. And that was the rule that they'd been given by their parents. And we must be very careful not to treat these kids like victims, because of course they're victims, but at the same time they're heroes. They get up every day and they face the kind of lifestyles that we could only imagine, and they survive. She has no idea what is a song like, but, but, but she's like me, like you. She has a, an ear and a soul. So I go to Rio with a song and a little boy in my head, and I find that the boy was a girl. The girl is a warrior. And I must stop feeling sorry for her. To pity her is to put her down. Music. Music. I've actually been thinking of proposing to the band that we give it a little offbeat kind of groove, like some kind of reggae thing. So I thought, which is like Paulo Mosca does it. Okay, let's try it. <laughs> The Kid in the Rain was presented and produced by Monica Vasconcelos and Neil Trevithick for the BBC World Service. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Write us some poetry, or maybe a song, and then send it to us. We take questions, comments, rants, and raves in any form at all. Email resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Which is the more powerful? key to the senses generally and I think it's the ear oh yes so listening and peopling the room the world the universe your head with these voices and stories and ambiguities you know is it this is it that I see bridge the card game is a game of subtlety, strategy, and skill. Partners need to know each other well, very well. In fact, the knowing glances and veiled tilts of the head make up a secret communication that can add up not only to a winning hand, but to an emotional soap opera. Here's the story of one bridge partnership from Australian producer Natalie Kesticher that wasn't a soap opera per se, it was an absolutely smoldering epic. Here's more than a game. 
We were warned against playing together. We heard the stories, but it was about the only interest that was shared. He was away a lot. Traveling salesman. Perfume. Said he had a lot of opportunities while he was on the road. I didn't believe him, but if it had been true, I wouldn't have cared. Most of our bridge-playing friends stopped inviting us after a while. Our arguments made them feel uncomfortable. Except for some neighbors we were friendly with, Charlie and Myrna Hoffman. Now there's a man who knew how to bid and play a hand of bridge. Charlie Hoffman. That Myrna was a lucky girl. Couldn't play bridge, though. It's more than a game because it shows so many other things that, uh, in, in people, not just their uh, card-playing skills, but also their personalities, their hopes, ambition, lust, concentration, weakness or strength of character. And as you move around the bridge room and go from table to table and sit with different opponents, you, it's just like another interesting story. contract. We have a process called the bidding. What happens in the bidding is that one of the players starts off and they have the right to make a bid, naming any one of the suits or no trumps, and they also must specify a certain number of tricks which they think they'll take. Then the bidding goes around in turn with each player having a chance to bid. Each bid must beat the previous bid, and when everyone's finished, the last bid becomes the contract. It's like life, but when you play the tape at higher speed, everything happens quickly. People create partnerships, partnerships fall apart. It's usually also involved with the emotion, etc., because you spend a lot of energy and, and emotion in building a partnership, you know, in making the whole thing work together because it's the two of you against the other pair. And you know, when if things like that, you know, don't work, there is a bit of disappointment and sadness, as much as there is joy when it works. One thing you notice when you play bridge is people's hands. I guess that's because they're always moving round during a game. Now, Charlie Hoffman had real nice hands. Long, fine fingers and beautiful nails. Crescent moons shone white on each one of them. He sometimes played the piano after a game. And let me tell you that watching those fingers glide over the ivories was even more heavenly than the music itself. Not like John's fingers, like 
bunches of little pink sausages. His nails were always bitten and rough, bits of dirt wedged underneath. Sometimes he'd use one of the cards to clean under them. Well, he did that night. Well, he did that night. Myrna Hoffman's nails were always done, manicured and painted scarlet. But with those big, freckled hands, it was a waste of time. She had the hands of a man. Worst thing about Myrna's fingers was when she'd start to tap them impatiently on the card table. All was after writing down her own bed, which she'd deliberate on for five minutes or more. Then she'd write down her bed with a kind of flourish and those big polished nails would start to tap, tap, tap. The fit. A fit is a suit where you and your partner have got a good number of cards. So, for example, in hearts, there's 13 hearts in the deck. And so if you and your partner have got a good number of those hearts, for example, at least eight, you've got a good working majority, or you've got what we call in bridge a fit. I'm not in a, into bridge gossip, but you know, you can't avoid those rumors. And I've seen families being broken up, women cheating on their husbands, all sorts of stuff that you would think, you know, is immoral or something. But it's, I think it's just a consequence of the intensity of the game and uh, the passion that's kind of being inflamed by the game gets mixed up with the passion for another human being. One thing I hated more than anything was watching John sort his cards. <laughs> he'd always drop a few while shuffling, Gee. and then he'd fix these <gasps> dumb expressions all over his face, <laughs> like he was so surprised and happy by the cards he'd been dealt. <laughs> and he'd take such a time to count his points, Plus. and he'd count them again and again. And then there'd always be some card hiding behind another card, and he'd always have to extract it with a great uh-huh. Uh-huh. I hated the way he said uh-huh. He said it on our wedding night as he peered under the sheets. The tricks. A trick is the fundamental unit of bridge. A trick is a combination of four cards, one from each of the four players. And so somebody leads a card, then everyone plays a card from that suit, and the trick will be won by the highest card in the suit which is led.
Well, my wife started, you know, we, we, we started playing, you know, we, we, we went all the way from playing bridge socially at home with just a couple of friends to playing, you know, in national competitions or competing on a national level with players from, you know, from everywhere. So in, in her life, the bridge has grown to be a, um, a real ambition, something where she can prove her values and, and so on. And she also started appreciating, you know, people who were good bridge players also ranked highly in, 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 her, in her eyes. And the ambition drove her basically to join this bridge circus and she was traveling around Australia and spending time there. And um, she met someone who impressed her as a, as a good bridge player and, uh, and she just went for it. So she left me. I guess you're all thinking that John was just a harmless little guy with funny little fat fingers. <laughs> but the Hoffmans will tell you. They were neighbors, so they heard the fights. Those fat little hands of his used to hit hard when he was angry, and that was just about any time I spoke out. Well, maybe that's why I played bridge with him. It was the only time I felt that I could tell him what I thought of him. Maybe it made our friends feel tense, but for me, it was a release. And I knew he couldn't hit me in front of other people. Until that night at the Hoffman's. The Dummy Hand. When we play a hand of bridge, one of the hands, in fact, is placed face up on the table so that all the four players can see. And in fact, the player who puts that hand face up on the table takes no further part in the play. So what happens is that their partner, who is in fact the declarer, will take responsibility for playing all the cards from the dummy hand. John opened the bidding with one spade. Charlie Hoffman bid two diamonds, so when it was my turn to bid, I bid four spades to game. But why not? John obviously had some cards and at least 12 points, and when I laid down my hand as dummy, I showed good support. In other words, we had a makeable contract. Thank you, partner. The play of the cards. Then we play the cards to see whether you make the number of tricks that you claimed you'd make in the bidding. And the way the card play works, somebody leads a card, one of the opponents leads a card, and then all the cards are played out with the declarer playing both hands for the winning partnership and they see how many tricks they make with their chosen suit as trumps. 
Well, John did not make the contract that night. We were down two tricks. Seems that not only had he played like the bum player he was, but he'd opened bidding light on points. Now, I agree opening light is not the end of the world if you play properly. But to open light and then play like that, it was more than I could take. It's the richness of the picture and, and you know, the kind of lack of um, shields that people put around them so that you don't see what's really under the skin. It's mostly gone in a bridge club. Hardly anyone manages to... And if someone is calm and nice, and you, you can bet that that's what they are in the real life. If you wanted to know someone, maybe a partner, if you wanted to know what's truly, what, what sort of character they have, if you can manage to bring them to a bridge club and let them play there, uh, it would be just a perfect thing, you know, they just wouldn't be able to hide anything. I think there is a saying, if you want to know what someone's like, just give them power and then they'll show their real face. I think it's very true for bridge. People do show their real faces there. Did I do wrong shooting John dead that night at the Hoffmans? Well, I know as well as anybody that taking a life is bad. But even those bridge experts who were called in as witnesses to analyze John's bidding and card play that night were on my side. Said that the way he played that night would drive anyone to kill. In the end, the judge called it a justifiable homicide. Guess I was lucky to get a judge who played bridge. More Than a Game was written and produced by Natalie Kestitcher for Radio Eye on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And now, instead of more, you might have a little less. Depends on how you look at it. Nathan Dyer is a teenager, maybe even more than a teenager. He's also a psychic, or maybe even a little less than one. His superpowers are, well, you'll see. Here is Portrait of a Psychic as a Young Man. It's 7 p.m. and a backpack is lost in Nathan Dyer's house. Get out the pendulum thing and find the backpack. My pendulum? I thought it was out in the car. Nathan has been instructed by his mom, Renee, to find the backpack using his pendulum. A pendulum is a stone, whether it may be a quartz. I mean, they can be made out of any stone, and they're sphere-shaped. He sits very still and lets the pendulum swing back and forth over the palm of his hand while asking it questions. Is it in the house? Is it in the living room? The pendulum is supposed to indicate yes or no by swinging in a particular direction, only problem is, Nathan and his grandmother, who is also involved in the search, can't seem to remember which direction means yes 
and which is no. Well, back and forth was no. No, that's that way. You were, look no at, you were looking at an angle. Oh, no is that way. Yes is this way. <laughs> this isn't the first time he's tried to find a lost item using a pendulum. He's been looking for his lost Nintendo Game Boy for about six months using the same method. But so far, it hasn't turned up. Meanwhile, his mother is straightening up the living room, which is littered with toys and clothes, a routine she goes through nightly. She finds the backpack without the help of the pendulum. Nathan Dyer is a psychic, but he's also a teenager, so he's still working out some kinks. Okay, you're going to pick another card? That was January. That's already passed. Today, Nathan is giving me a tarot card reading at his kitchen table. And I'm also hearing you've always been emotional, even since you were younger. Like, if someone said something mean to you, you t you'd sort of take it personal. And if it's, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm like that too. I mean, he says from a pretty young age, he knew he had psychic powers. It started with dreams and strong intuitive feelings about people. And then, according to family legend, other mysterious things started to happen. Nathan's mom, Renee. So he has a tremendous amount of energy. The, the kid blows light bulbs. The family would be sitting at the dining room table when suddenly a light bulb in the chandelier would blow out. Eventually, the whole family came to believe that Nathan was bursting the light bulbs with his energy. We placed like six light bulbs in the chandelier, you know, and it's like all within a month, month and a half. He blew a light bulb at school. He said, I all but got a bill in the mail. Okay, month of March looks interesting too. It looks like a difficult problem or situation. A couple of years ago, when Nathan was 13, he started going to psychic development classes and became a certified energy healer. Then he decided to start a business. He had business cards made and even designed his own webpage. One day he hopes to have his own office. But for now, he does a lot of work from home. It's going to be one of those things where you want to back away Nathan is very professional as he reads my tarot cards. But his younger sister Tara makes faces and rolls her eyes in the background. She calls him a moron and a boob. But he doesn't let it get to him. He just scolds her and keeps going. Tara, if you do not stop, you're going to have to go away from the table. Okay, so he allegedly blows up light bulbs with his energy. Hello? But in a lot of ways, Nathan's just like any other teenager. He spends hours on the phone, wears Abercrombie and Fitch sweatshirts, gels his hair. And before he leaves the house, he sprays himself down with something called Axe which is like a nuclear bomb of teenage boy. But so far, his teenage life and his psychic life don't really mix. I sort of keep hush at school because that's it. The supernatural is not really accepted just because they're, I guess, because they're scared of it in a way. I think that's part of the reason why people don't indulge in it. Welcome. You've got mail. Unlike his classmates, when Nathan gets home from school, he gives psychic advice over the internet. I've had some clients that have asked me just these real hard questions about maybe possibly an affair that has gone on. And I may have been right, I may not have, I have not heard back on that. It's a responsibility that I've been given 
that I have to take care of. The reason why I want to use my abilities is to help other people. I've always wanted to help other people. You help people out by guiding them and bring them spiritual guidance into their life. Because without a spiritual life, you're lost. If you're lost, I guess there's not much good of that. Today, Nathan and I are in Silo 7, a metaphysical store in Bangor, Maine. If Nathan was lost before he had a spiritual life, this would be the place where he started finding himself. Nathan would come in here and ask question after question after question. So after a while, I set up a policy. You get seven questions. After that, I won't answer a thing. I didn't know that. I gave oh. him un unlimited questions. Oh, not me. He's a very mature teenager in some ways. He thinks on the larger scale of global type things and issues. Like an and old then, soul. Like an old soul. And then there's other times when he's a... Pain in the butt. Teenager. Yep. <laughs> Did we summarize you up pretty good, pal? I'll give you a B. <laughs> Armed with 20 bucks that he talked out of his grandma, Nathan is browsing the store looking at books and crystals. Finally, he decides on a CD of the chanting Gregorian monks. It's evening time at Nathan's house. He and his sister Tara and her friend are sitting at the kitchen table playing video games under the aforementioned chandelier. I tell him I want to see him burst a light bulb with his energy. My grandmother's gonna kill me for this. Watch the chandelier though, because it may start spinning. We all look up at the chandelier as Nathan sits with his eyes closed, breathing in and out slowly, his palms facing up. If you ask Nathan, the teenage psychic, what the future holds for him, he's got a lot of different visions. Among them, getting an office for his psychic work, going to college, maybe becoming a doctor. But for now, he's got other worries, like finding his missing Nintendo, making light bulbs burst with his mind, and just being a teenage kid. Is the chandelier moving or is it just me? Just you. Nothing's happening. Can we just go back to what we were doing? No light bulbs burst in the chandelier and Tara and her friend go back to their video games. Nathan tells me he can't really make things blow up on purpose yet. It's like a power that he has but hasn't learned to harness. And so it is for a 15-year-old psychic. A 15-year-old anybody, really, exploding with potential. Nobody wanna see us together, but it don't matter, no. Portrait of a Psychic as a Young Man was produced by Katie Mingle when she was at the Salt Center for Documentary Studies. Now, Katie is an intern here at the Third Coast Festival. Lucky us. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.